Ball loose, the Illini have it. Black from midcourt for the win. Oh, it's just short. Oh, he just missed it. He nearly threw it in from midcourt, and we're going to overtime. 12 seconds left. The Illini do have a timeout if they want to use it. They don't. Here's Lucas. Lucas driving in the lane. Tough shot blocked. Knocked out of there by Northwestern with two seconds, and the Illini have to foul. Illini are out of timeouts. Free throw in the air, and good. Made a move. Brown with a big bucket and two big free throws. 2.1 seconds left, 72-68 Northwestern. Inbound to Lucas. Lucas, midcourt shot for three. Missed it, and the game is over. Northwestern wins it, 72-68 in overtime. It's time for Saturday Sports Talk on News Talk 1400, WDWS Champaign-Urbana. We'll get you caught up on your Illini sports news along with other area national sports news. Here are Lauren Tate and Michael Kaiser. Good Saturday morning. Thanks for joining us. It's going to be a beautiful day in East Central Illinois, around 60 degrees for this December 2nd. Unseasonably warm temperatures, definitely going to take that. Right now, 41 degrees here in East Central Illinois. Join the program by giving us a call at 356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 351-5357. Listen live at WDWS.com. You can also email us your thoughts, talk at WDWS.com. And as always, a podcast of this show is on our website and on iTunes. You just heard some Illini basketball highlights from last night. The Illini dropped the Big Ten opener to Northwestern. and Plenty of coverage of that on today's show. Plenty of college football news, conference championship games on this championship Saturday. A lot to get to on today's program. Lauren, how are you this morning? You made it back once again from Chicago. Yeah, it's just a two-hour trip this time of day because uh, they don't have the traffic at 6 o'clock in the morning in Chicago. When I come out of there, it's uh, pretty clear. Yeah, that's uh, one of the rare times the traffic you in bet. Chicago it was, was really pretty clear. bad last night. Yeah, I heard Boy, you talking about that a little bit ago. Oh, man. An hour and a half it took me just from, from the United Center to Rosemont, which it shouldn't be, but uh, – what should it be without any traffic, that oh, drive? Oh, I don't know. Not we that got, it matters because there's always traffic. At, we got back at midnight, and it, well, I suppose about 40 minutes. I, it's it's a long way up to mm-hmm. uh, O'Hare. You're, yeah. you're right next to O'Hare. Uh, Rosemont's yeah. right, right adjacent to O'Hare. And, and the traffic is just pretty rough. I mean, all the time, uh, O'Hare has a lot of traffic. Yeah, O'Hare's one of the one of the busiest airport in America. One of the busiest airports in America, so yep. clearly it's going to be. But, you know, I, I want to get around to the game. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I thought Illinois really played hard. Absolutely. I, th- yeah. I thought that uh, that it was a, an intense game with uh, two feverish fan bases, although the place was not packed. But uh, Illinois had a lot of people there, and uh, Northwestern had their support. And I, it was just a heck of a game and could have gone either way. There was a whole lot of statistics that really came out bad for Illinois. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't shoot 16% on three-point shots. It's just – they're three out of 18. You can't have just six offensive rebounds, three by Black and, and six for the team. Uh, 23 personal fouls, that's a continuation of where they are. They're, they're averaging 23-plus fouls a game, and that's one of the worst in the nation. And uh, at the same time, I want to mention that Northwestern had 28 fouls and had three guys uh, foul out. But mm-hmm. as you go down these stats, four blocks by Pardon, no blocks by Illinois, which tells you – What's happening with Finky? He's getting dominated in the in the middle. Well, and I, I expect the Illinois to have very few blocks for the entire season. Yeah, they're, they're just not. They don't have anybody down low no. who's going to block shots. No. Haven't had somebody like that in a while. 
Another number that really stood out to me was you mentioned, I'm going to go back to the offensive rebounds, only six offensive rebounds. Brad Underwood was not very happy about that because they had 17 against Wake Forest. Well, they were averaging double figures. Yeah, Wake Forest has two seven-footers, and you got 17 offensive rebounds. You get six against Northwestern. That just can't happen. I mean, the size difference between Wake Forest and Northwestern is a lot, and you didn't get off its rebounds. The reason they lost, in my opinion, to Wake Forest was they got intimidated inside. Black got intimidated. The the, the size of Wake Forest really hurt Illinois inside. More blocks, but not so much the blocks, but intimidating Illinois on their inside shooting. Now, this game, again, Illinois was hurt inside. Pardon made some huge plays in there. Blocking and being a defender at the, I mean, Illinois' offense evolved eventually into Lucas trying to dribble. And mm-hmm. he, I, I don't want to criticize him because nobody else was doing anything anyway. I mean, it wasn't, the, like, it wasn't like he was taken away from somebody else's ability to do something. Nobody else was doing anything. As far as down the stretch of the game, I was focused That's on down I mean. the, I'm going to focus on that because the rest of the game, some other guys played well. Mark Allstroke looked pretty good last night on both ends of the floor. But Tijon Lucas just had to take over. Now, I think he got, you know, heat check isn't the right word, but he, he went to the lane consistently and either got fouled or scored. And, but that last one, he got blocked. And I think he felt like he was getting there at will and they weren't going to stop him. And he did it again, and he got blocked this time. And I think he forced the issue there on that last possession. I think he dribbled way too much and didn't have anything. It was clear he didn't have anything. Uh, I haven't watched the tape again to see who was open but he's got to find the open guy well, there. He's trying. Yeah. He's trying to find the open. He's yeah. trying to create something. Uh, Illinois just didn't have the offense just bogged down completely. But at the same time, on the other end, Illinois was forcing turnovers. They had eight steals in the game. I, I thought that some of uh, De- DeMonte Williams' stuff, again, mm-hmm. he just knows how to play basketball, but he's yeah. not a scorer. No. And when you've got him in there and you're not getting any score, scoring in the post, and, you know, and. They they basically figured out what Jordan's doing, and they they were on Jordan pretty hard. He he had a couple of nice baskets, but he most of his work was done in the first half. I think he had just three points in the second half. So they the Illinois' offense really bogged down in the game. But I think it was a result of Northwestern figuring out what Illinois was doing and then playing really tough defense and to counter Illinois' tough defense. Well, we'll talk more about this game coming up in a few minutes. Uh, Bryant McIntosh had six turnovers last night for Northwestern. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not play that well, at least from taking care of the ball standpoint. Uh, so we'll talk more about this game with John Crispin, who did the game last night on the Big Ten Network, uh, was the color analyst for BTN. We'll talk to him, get his thoughts on the game since he was courtside and the Big Ten. Uh, mm-hmm. Michigan State's out there on island by itself, I think. A little Purdue got a big win last night on the road at Maryland, 80-75. to uh, so it's, it'll be interesting to hear what he thinks of Illinois early on in, in the tenure. There's a lot of learning to do for One Illinois. One thing I see is they reflect the toughness of Underwood. I think they've got the right guy coaching him. I think, I think he's doing a fine job. He's just limited. Uh, this, this talent is really limited on this team. This is still a second division Big Ten team. Don't forget that, talent-wise. I don't know how far he can bring them. That's, and that's a great point. I think people need a, a good to remember that. Uh, this team is – I don't expect this team to make the NCAA tournament this year. I didn't going in, so I'm not totally uh, upset about that. One thing – also, I mean, I need to clarify my comments about the last play. It was, it was an ISO play for Tijon Lucas, uh, you know, thanks to Evan Conn for pointing this out. Like, it was an ISO play, and Northwestern just let their defenders bunch in the lane because they knew what he was going to do. Well, that was, that's all they were doing toward the end. Yeah, and, they, I mean, and it was the same play over and over. Yeah. I mean, not, it wasn't a play. It's just a guy taking the ball and trying to dribble. 
And, you know, and it's, I wish it was in the NBA. Which, by the way, was happening on the other end, too. And they were repulsing all those efforts by McIntyre to penetrate, you know. They, they intercepted a couple of his passes late. Yeah, they did. And, and Orton knocked it away. And I, uh, you know, I just think that I wish it was the NBA for that one play and the and one. Because it, it was real close to being an and one for Tijon Lucas. He made the basket and was fouled, but it was just a hair too late. We had six baskets taken away from that game, either by charging or mm-hmm. the tip in by, by Finky or, you know, when, he, when the foul was called. There, were, there, were, there was no – we're in the, almost in the, in the act of shooting and made the basket and the, and the official would run out and say, you know, the foul was done before he took the shot. We had six baskets that way that were not counted. Let's take a real quick phone call, then we'll get to John Christman of the Big Ten Network. Go ahead, Alan. How are you this morning? Good, guys. Uh, got to be quick, Alan. we got to get to John Crispin. Okay. Uh, you guys are absolutely right about uh, everything last night. Uh, we're playing harder. Our defense kept us in the game, but uh, we cannot – I thought we were going to play a faster transition game. We cannot play half-court in the Big Ten and expect to win. It just won't happen. We don't have – the size, we have to nope. beat people back and try to create things. We can't just pass the ball around on a zone defense constantly and uh, try to do things with it because it's just like, I don't know, it's just like watching paint dry, really. It's, I, don't know, I don't know why Northwestern didn't stay in the zone longer. They were, they came they started a man-to-man, they went to a zone, then they came out of it and went. I thought both times they were in the zone. Illinois was, uh, as you say, kind of forced to throw the ball around and, and not getting any penetration, not getting to the high post. We still are beating the point guard. I hate to say this, but we still need one. Oh, yeah, well. You got one coming next year. (laughs) Yeah, keep saying that every year. Well, uh, I, I'm correct. I would assume it was a five-star. I mean, he can play both positions, but he's a point guard, too. So We said the same thing about Mark Smith, too. Yeah, he's a freshman. He's a freshman. I mean, you're expecting greatness out of freshmen. We don't have Duke freshmen. So, I mean, that's That's just – Thanks, appreciate it. Yep. Let's take a timeout. We'll get John Crispin in here. Again, he was on the call last night for the Big Ten Network. Get his thoughts on the game and the Big Ten Conference. That's coming up next here on DWS. In the lane, tough shot blocked. Knocked out of there by Northwestern with two seconds. And the Illini have to foul. 2.1 seconds left, 72-68 Northwestern. Inbound to Lucas. Lucas midcourt shot for three. Missed it, and the game is over. Northwestern wins it, 72-68 in overtime. I'm frustrated because it's, it's, it's one of those things we probably have not worked enough on. It's late game situations, and yet we got to get shot. I mean, I think we had three of our last four shots blocked. Um, and it's, it's about making the right play. We talk about all the time, last 10 seconds or eight seconds of a game, I don't like calling timeout. It's advantage defense then because they can change defense. And yet we had three guys wide open, and, and we've got to learn to make that play. just thought it was a really hard-played game, um, which it usually always is when we play those guys. Um, they're very hard to play against. The, with their with their pressure defense and denying of passes, you know basically you just you can't run your offense. You just have to make plays. You got to drive the ball, and we had some success at times doing that. And then other times we we got sped up and 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 had some turnovers like at the end of the game. But I think a lot of that had to do with just guys being really tired.
Welcome back to Saturday Sports Talk here on DWS. He's Lauren Tate. I'm Michael Kaiser. Thanks for joining us. That was Chris Collins and Brad Underwood after the game last night. Uh, pleased to be joined now by John Chrisman, Big Ten Network analyst, was on the call last night for BTN. John, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm still exhausted. Yeah, <laughs> I am too. I mean, December 1st, like I said on the broadcast, I just finished my last bit of leftovers of turkey, and we're right. already playing Big Ten Conference basketball. I heard you say that last night, and I was like, that's a perfect line. I'm gonna, can I use that? Is that all right? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's probably not something I actually came up with myself. I mean, I probably took it from my wife or something. I, I plagiarized everything. Well, if you take it from your wife, then it's okay. You know, it's just, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. She, she probably expects it. Well, uh, give uh, John a follow on Twitter, BTN John Crispin. He's a studio and game analyst, also for Westwood One Sports Game and Studio Analyst. Well, John... As you, it's a really intense game. You mentioned that you're still exhausted from the game. It went into overtime last night. What did the Northwestern do down the stretch that they weren't doing early in the game that allowed them to get that win? And Scotty Lindsay had a great game. Yeah, they started to attack early. They started to drive the basketball, and it's hard because they like to play with continuity. You know, they get into that continuity offense where they pass the ball, they cut, they back cut you. But if you can't make a pass you get completely taken out of what you want to do. And that's what Illinois did in the first half. They took passes away. They took ball reversals away. You couldn't even get into your offense. So I think at that point in the second half, you just have to attack it. You alleviate the, the pressure by attacking it. Force them to play back on their heels. You can't let them be up on their toes and just dictate what you do. So the aggressiveness in the second half, after really getting punched in the first half, it really changed things for Northwestern. It just gave them an opportunity, and I think gave them a little confidence against the pressure. How important was this win for Northwestern? They they've, they have been kind of up and down, uh, had some struggles, especially against Texas Tech and Creighton. That was a high-scoring affair. But how important was this win for Northwestern to get the conference season going on the right foot? I know they have several non-conference games before the, the conference season really wraps up in a, several weeks from now, but what, did they really need this win badly? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, how often can you say uh, this was a must-win, right? Like, yeah. I feel like that you could say that so often in, in the Big Ten Conference play, but especially when your non-conference has been a struggle, especially when the expectation is so high where you have the same core of guys coming back. You, you don't have Sanjay Lumpkin, which I have Nathan Taphorn too, but Sanjay Lumpkin was their guy in terms of like the glue guy, keep the team together. You know, get the most out of everybody, dive on the floor, lose his teeth, all that type of stuff. And I think they're realizing how important those guys are. So what they're figuring out is that other people on the bench could fill a role that doesn't mean score. It may just mean go get a rebound, get a stop defensively, be intense when you're on the floor, be tough. So, so I think it was a must win for them in the sense that they needed to go out and show that they are, are intense that they can play with a sense of urgency, and they're still the tough team that we saw last year. John, this is Lauren. What did you come away thinking about Illinois? Oh, Lord. I, I am a buyer. I am an absolute buyer of this program. And, and it's not because they compete and they play hard and I like what Brad Underwood wants to do. No, I, I, what I like is that there is a consistency of messaging and a consistency of work within this program, and that starts with Brad Underwood and goes all the way down to probably the last manager on the bench. He teaches these guys how to be pros. He treats them like pros so long as they are actually putting in the effort. And it's not just 
with the work ethic on the floor. It's the weight room. It's it's you know it's how you manage your day to day business. It's how you take care of your body. It's your nutrition. And then even on the floor, they work. It's not just show up and you know screw around. They work. And he is an intense guy. He's the alpha dog. I think I, I put him up there with Tom Izzo in that category in terms of alpha dog coach where he's in charge, but the players have responded well to him because of the consistency of his messaging. It's not just, I'm going to yell and scream and you're going to do what I say. It's He's trying to teach the game and he's teaching them how to play, not just play a system, but actually play the game of basketball. And I'm telling you, it's going to, you're going to get really high-level players there because of the up-tempo style and because they're going to be developed. So, so far, from what I saw last night, I'm, I'm buying the future of this program. You know, I, I thought a couple of games ago when, when Illinois was playing teams that weren't quite up to their level that the defense was really weak. I was really concerned about the defense, and I thought last night there was a new level of defense. First of all, in help, getting help off of uh, the drives of, of McIntyre, mm-hmm. who's, by the way, really hard to stop, but they kept getting help. And then they, they recovered. I mean, there was so much – hustle in the recovery that's what you got to because otherwise the guys are going to be shooting open threes out there and I thought early that I could some problems but late they were just I thought terrific in doing that what'd you think well I think what's important when you want to play pressure and tempo like that you got to play good teams you know it's it's so hard to get up for inferior opponents when you're playing that up-tempo pressure style basketball. Because in a way, your, your players subconsciously are going, eh, we don't really need to worry about these guys. And, and you don't realize how much that hurts. Well, when they come in with Northwestern and they see Bryant McIntosh, Vic Wall, Scotty Lindsay, that is a challenge. And they got up for it. And if they can bottle that against whoever it is they're going to play, they're going to have a lot of success. But you're right about the rotations, too. And, and that's the coaching. There were backside rotations. They saw man, I see man, see ball, all those simple principles, which is so important when you're playing that pressure type of defense because pressure is going to give up drives. So you do have to be in position. But one thing I want to say is they didn't overhelp. They didn't just crowd the basketball and give up open threes. They, they helped to stop the ball, but they were also able to have a short enough closeout to take away a three opportunity. It was, it was really impressive. Yeah, I, I thought that uh, this is too, what I, I guess you would call, Illinois is an average team at this point in terms of their talent mm-hmm. in the Big Ten. And, and I, I just thought that there was a, a level, maybe it was because it was Northwestern against Illinois. Maybe it was because of the fans. I don't know. But there was an intensity about the game that I hadn't seen all season. It's, I guess that's what Big Ten basketball is, John. It is what Big Ten basketball is. And I, and I think that Brad Underwood's also going to bring a, a different athlete to the game we talked before the game and he said you know if you look at the big 12 the two through four in the big 12 they're all pros you know there's no slow-footed you know can't defend can't really create for themselves players in those positions i mean josh jackson at kansas he said those are the type of guys i i want in this system so i mean if you continue to find that type of player maybe they're not pros right away but they're players that you can develop but athletically they have the potential to be so. Uh, I think that's when you can start to see this system thrive. You get a little more length, you get a little more athleticism, and goodness gracious, that pressure is going to be brutal. 
John Chrisman of the Big Ten Network joining us on Saturday Sports Talk here on DWS. Give him a follow at BTN John Chrisman. Before we get on to the rest of the Big Ten, T. John Lucas has had a slow start to the season. He missed some time due to concussion and practice early on uh, in the practice schedule. But he's he's I've seen some development in the last few games, and I thought he played really well last night. With the ex- he kind of forced it there at the end of the game, but I thought he really just was able to get the rim at will and, and look good. What did you see from Tijon last night? Oh, look, when, when he's attacking, he's nearly impossible to stop. He's so One of the things with him is he's so balanced. Even when he's attacking, working his way around the defender, he's very balanced and he has his head up. Now, the shot at the end, I don't blame him. I really don't. He, he, he in some way, single-handedly kept them in the game towards the end. Mm-hmm. He really did. I mean, he created opportunities, and, and I like that from a player. And I think down the road, Brad Underwood will look at that and go, the guy just wants to win the game. I don't think it was a selfish play. I just think it was, hey, I, I can get to the basket and make something happen. Uh, and, I mean, I understand that feeling. As a competitor, I understand that feeling. Now, he's going to get more patient, and he's going to grow, and he's going to realize to take the right opportunities when they come. And he's going to know when to find teammates. But I think that comes with trust. I think he's going to learn how to trust his teammates to make plays as well. So I, I don't mind that play. I think he had a fantastic game, I think, offensively and defensively, but mainly in the sense that he was able to dictate the pace and tempo of the game. And that's what you want from your point guard, especially if you're Brad Underwood and you want to play this tempo style of offense where your defense turns into fast, fast offense. Well, Tijon Lucas pushed it, and it was really hard to stop in, in, him in transition. Well, the rest of the Big Ten, obviously Michigan State uh, stands out as the top. Uh, just that you know, they had a really dominating game against Notre Dame the other night. Uh, the, the Big Ten ACC challenge did not go well. 11-3 to was the final tally there. Who in your mind after Michigan State uh, is probably the top, next two or three top teams in the Big Ten after Michigan State, as you've seen it right now? Again, Big Ten play just started. Well, I'll tell you, I, I, I think this is how it's going to be all season. It's not just how I see it right now. I think it's all season going to be Michigan State, Minnesota, and Purdue. I mean, those seem to be the top three teams, and I don't think that changes. I mean, anything can happen, but I, I really have a tough time seeing that change. I think after that is where it gets interesting, and after that is where it's going to be an absolute fight for those next few spots because, you know, those next three, four spots are, are usually NCAA tournaments, uh, you know, uh, appearances. So I, I think you look at Maryland. And Maryland's a team that had played a great game against Purdue last night. I think Maryland could be very good. They've got great balance. And after Maryland, you go Northwestern. I think Northwestern, once they figure it out, probably in there. I still think Iowa's got a little something in them, but you know it's a young team and they can't seem to figure it out yet. It's just wide open, in my opinion. I think Penn State's another team where it's like, gosh, you got the talent. At some point, you've got to win at a high level. Uh, so it's wide open, I would say, from four on down. Four to 12 is probably wide open, and that's where a team like Illinois, you know, they're going to beat a lot of people. And in a way, I think Illinois is going to ruin a lot of people's season by winning some big games because of the way they play. John, I've sworn off uh, complaining about officiating <laughs> five times already this season. <laughs> We've only had seven or eight games. But uh, – What's your take on all the fouling? And is it is it the officials? Is it the players? Is it are they too picky? I mean, I, I what we what we have last night, uh, twenty eight and twenty three. My goodness, the fifty one <laughs> fouls in that game. We had fifty nine in an earlier game. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's too too much stoppage, John. What do you think? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and the thing is, it's tough. I mean, I know these guys pretty well, and, you know, I, I see them as, as people. When I was a player, I saw them as, you know, just the devil. You know, <laughs> it's just like they were always in your way. All <laughs> Jim Burr, Jim Burr telling me, he would yell at me every time I'd make a foul and try to argue. I mean, it was, I, I never saw them as people. I see them as people, and I started to understand what they actually have to go through. They're graded at halftime. They're graded after the game. And they're graded for calling the game to the letter of the law. I I mean, they, they are trying to call, and, and their video confirms the things that they missed. So I, I think that's part of the challenge. I might talk to Terry Weimer about this last year. I said, Terry, I mean, how do you perform as an official when you're being graded constantly? When, when you take videotape to say, you missed this, this was a hand check, you should have called it. Yeah. Of course, they're now going to look for everything because they're going to be graded on it. And when you're graded on it, it affects whether you call an NCAA tournament game. It affects whether you get the Big Ten tournament. So I think it's really tough for them to perform the way they need to perform and just do things subconsciously and instinctually. And these are guys that, I mean, Terry Warren has been doing this for 25 years. You think he needs a grade? Just let him go. So I, I think that's one of the problems. You have all these rule changes. You have all these points of emphasis that change year to year, and ironically enough, the points of emphasis are rules that have already been in place. It's just that now they want to make it a point of emphasis to call. So, of course, you're going to have guys make extra calls. Well, we want freedom of movement. So we're going to call every time you bump into somebody. Well, John, you are a guard, and you know that if you drive that ball, if you can get any kind of a little edge and you can drive, you're going to get a foul. I mean, that's just oh, the might, way the game is. And, and, and we saw two guards attempting that last night, and there were 51 fouls in that game. You know? I, I tell you, I might have had a longer basketball career. And <laughs> I know my brother certainly would have as a point guard and a guy who really had the ability to play in the NBA. Uh, he would have dominated. If you couldn't put your hands on him, he would have absolutely dominated. Yeah. But right now, it's, it's, you've got to be able to play with contact. I, I think – I always said last year, I said, at some point, I want to see a freedom of contact point of emphasis. You know, there's a freedom of contact where you can make contact with somebody so long as it's not about an advantage gained. If you're making contact with a ball handler to gain an advantage, then, yeah, I, I think that's a foul. You're, you're physically making contact to gain advantage. Whereas if you're just making contact with him because you're moving at full speed and he's moving at full speed and you're both trying to occupy or get to the same spot, you can't take that away. And I, I think it's just, it's hard, but I, but I feel, I feel more for the officials. I always say that I'm a great official after I see things, you know, in slow-mo three times, they're doing it live full speed. John, we, John, we, we got to let you go here, but, but bringing up officials made me reminded me, and I don't think this has been announced on the, on the show or, or, you know, in the newspaper locally, but Jim Bain, a great official, long-time yep. official, passed away. And I just want to bring... Jim Bain, wow. Remember Jim Bain? He, yes, he, I do. He was yes, a good one, boy, and he was a good one for a long time. And it's just... Uh, wow. So that... that uh, I just heard about that, and I thought everybody that uh, saw him work and remembers him would like to know. He's from Decatur originally. I shouldn't say originally. He was he was from Decatur at some point <laughs> in his life. But uh, anyway, we we got to let you go. But uh, any any last comments? Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward. I got Purdue Northwestern next. 
And, oh boy! Uh, oh wow! I'm really looking forward to a grinder of a Big Ten season. I'm I'm just sad we got a little layoff between now and after Christmas. Yeah, now it's kind of like a tease. I I don't like the tease. It's just, <laughs> it's just that's right. We get more of a tease next year because it's 20 game conference schedule, so we'll have more uh, conference I games early. Love it. So, well, I'm glad you got your turkey leftovers finished just in time for last night uh, for conference play, and uh, we'll definitely that's look great. you up later in the season. All right, sounds good, guys. Have a good one. You Thanks, too. John. That's John Crispin of the Big Ten Network joining us here on Saturday Sports Talk on DWS was on the call last night for BTN. We'll take a timeout. We're going to switch over to college football. It's been a, a wild whirlwind week. Coaches moving all over the place. Tennessee, all kinds of things going on. We'll talk to Adam Rittenberg of ESPN next. He's at the Big Ten title game uh, in Indianapolis. Coming up at 10 o'clock, we'll talk to Ryan Easterling on Illini football, recruiting, and transfers. And at 10.30, we'll dive deeper into the Tennessee situation with Steve Lehman. You've heard him on these airways before. He's now down in Tennessee. We'll talk to him at 10.30. All that's coming up here on DWS. Welcome back to Saturday Sports Talk here on DWS. He's Lauren Tate. I'm Michael Kaiser. Thanks for joining us on today's program. Those highlights courtesy of ESPN last night. Uh, Joe Tessitore and Todd Blackledge were on the call in a thrilling game in a Pac-12 title game. It's championship Saturday. Um, USC beat number 14 Stanford 31-28 to claim the Trojans' first conference championship since, since 2008. Joining us now on the program, Adam Rittenberg of ESPN. He's in Indianapolis for the Big Ten title game. Adam, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, guys. Doing well. What a game last night. Uh, we got a lot, to, a lot of ground to cover. We'll see if we can get to all of it today with the coaching and the championship games. But a uh, really good game last night between USC and Stanford. Yeah, it was. And, you know, and this may be a theme, guys, as we have a couple of rematches around the country today that the rematch is, is closer than the first game. You know, Stanford was handled pretty well in that first ball game down in L.A., um, and, but they, they were much more competitive and, and certainly had an opportunity there even at the end. You know, Bryce Love, so impressed with him. Not 100%, but another 100-yard rushing game. KJ Costello has emerged at quarterback. I think Stanford's going to be really good with him in the future, uh, but USC was just a little bit too much. Sam Darnold, a big legacy moment for him, guys, mm -hmm. leading – you know, two touchdown drives longer than 95 yards and no interceptions, making several NFL-type throws. He's going to be selected very early in the NFL draft if he chooses to come out. Yeah, a tremendous game from him. That 99-yard touchdown drive was just incredible last night. Uh, but that fourth-and-goal stance by the USC defense uh, against Stanford when uh, USC only had a three-point lead, that was a, a, a huge moment in the game. Yes. Yeah, no, and, and, and that was you – know, USC had such an interesting season because – I, I really, you know, was more of a fan of them than a lot of people nationally because I, you know, I knew what they were going through as far as scheduling. No bye week until last week. You know, their non-conference includes Texas and Notre Dame, where some of these other Power Five schools play nobody outside the conference. USC had Western Michigan, which you know was 13 and 0 last year, and uh, and then Texas and Notre Dame. So there were really no letups on their schedule. And they obviously weren't as dominant as some of us thought they would be. Uh, they were awful against Notre Dame. I was at that game, and that's going to keep them out of the college football playoff. But um, it's still a really good team, and uh, I think Clay Helton deserves a little more credit than he gets nationally. Yeah, no Mercer on their schedule, huh? No Mercer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Lord. Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to swing you over to the Ohio State-Wisconsin game. Are you going to cover that today, Adam? 
correct, Lauren. Yeah, I'm here in Indianapolis. Actually, first time in several years I've actually covered this game. So excited to uh, be back at the Big Ten Championship. What do you expect? You know, I hear people say, oh, Ohio State, 59 to nothing one year. Remember that? Uh, <laughs> but Ohio, the one thing that's overlooked constantly when we talk about Wisconsin is their defense. And I don't mean this year. I mean a consistent defense that's been unbelievably uh, tough year after year. Can they stop? Ohio State's attack, and will Barrett be a factor in the game? Well, yeah, I, I think yes and and possibly. I think that they can stop Ohio State's attack because you've seen other teams do it this year. You saw Oklahoma do it. That's not nearly as good of a defense as this Wisconsin defense. You saw Iowa force a lot of mistakes. That's not nearly as good of a defense as this uh, Wisconsin defense is. So, um, and you know, I, I think they absolutely can slow down Ohio State. Ohio State's got a lot of athletes. You know, it depends on their offensive line, and then obviously JT Barrett's health. Um, you know, I saw him walking you know around the uh, building yesterday. He seemed to be moving around okay, but I, I'd be surprised if Ohio State runs him as much as they normally run JT Barrett. He is a run first quarterback, uh, but uh, you know, coming off of the knee surgery. You know, I think they're going to have to be a little bit careful with him. And I think Dwayne Haskins could be a factor in this game. He looked really good replacing JT last week in Ann Arbor. He, he's, he's accurate. Um, I was sitting in a meeting with him and all the quarterbacks in the preseason guys, and, and Dwayne was pretty far behind knowledge-wise. But I think he's caught up over the course of this year and could certainly step into this game and, and help Ohio State if JT, uh, they determine, is unable to, to really help them enough at quarterback. Is there a factor um, in terms of uh, history, tradition, the, the, you know, the, just the feeling that everybody has about Ohio State? I, I think uh, you know, if Ohio State goes out and wins, that there will be a lot of people who say, well, they should be in the playoff because they're Ohio State. I mean, I, I wonder if you would feel the same if they didn't have those particular jerseys on. What do you think? Yeah, well, you know, there's debate on this, Lauren. I was just watching College Game Day, and uh, you know, Kirk Herbstreit brought up the point that if it was Alabama in Ohio State's position, then they would also get the benefit of the doubt because it's Alabama. We always right. assume that they're just top four. Yeah, I, I, again, I have been very clear on this this week and for the last few weeks. I don't believe Ohio State should be in the playoff. Now, I, my mind might change a little bit tonight depending on how they perform, but I just believe that any team, whether you're Ohio State or Alabama, which consistently have top four talent, or a team like Wisconsin or a team like Miami, any team that gets blown out twice yeah. in a season shouldn't be part of the playoffs. So, and, so uh, you consider yeah, I mean, a close game important? I mean, a close game as opposed to a blowout would be a, a different factor, right? Well, yeah, I mean, they can't do anything about their losses. Um, they obviously could do something about their, their game tonight. And, you know, if they're able to, to do something to Wisconsin like they did three years ago when they won 59 to nothing and then advanced to the, uh, the national championship where they won it. Um, maybe that changes my mind a little bit, but I just have a hard time getting past how they lost those two games this year, one on their home field and then the other one historically to a, a very average Iowa team on the road. Well, uh, do you see a low-scoring game? You know, Lauren, it's interesting. This game, if you look at it historically, I know it's only been since 2011, has been high-scoring in nature. Um, yeah, I think it's because you're playing indoors. You know, Big Ten teams have been dealing with weather and other factors here the last few weeks. Now you're dealing in a perfect, uh, you're entering a perfectly climate-controlled setting. So you typically see a few more points than normal. Um, but not, I, I, you know, both defenses are very, very good. I, I really love what Wisconsin does defensively. They have a tremendous speed and explosiveness throughout that unit. So um, I, I do think it'll be probably a game that it'll be in the 20s. 
no higher than that. But I would just keep in mind that this Big Ten title game tends to be a little higher scoring than we anticipate going in. Adam Rittenberg of ESPN joining us on Saturday Sports Talk here on DWS. Give him a follow on Twitter at ESPN Rittenberg, especially with all the moving and shaking college football of late. Well, before we get off the Big Ten title game, if Wisconsin does indeed win tonight, they remain undefeated. Obviously, they'll be in the playoff. What? We don't know who they're going to play, obviously, yet. We don't know that. But what are their chances in advancing? Because we saw, what's, we saw what happened to Michigan State a couple of years ago. We saw what happened to Ohio State last year. Uh, both of them were shut out in an embarrassing fashion. I'm sorry, which team? I just cut w- out for a second. Which Wisconsin, team Wisconsin. If they, if oh, yeah. if they win, oh yeah, no, no, they're they're getting in. Yeah, I mean, but what, I mean, no what I meant was what happens in what do you what do you think of their chances are in the playoff? Oh sure, yeah. I mean, again, it depends on matchup. You know, um, I think right now you could argue that no one's playing better in the country than Auburn, but Auburn's dealing with some injuries, and we'll see how they do today against uh, Georgia. You know, I think whoever Wisconsin faces in the playoff, uh, you know, after today, it'll be, you know, their biggest test offensively. I mean, we know what Clemson can do as far as, far as running the ball. Um, I, you know, Oklahoma's got the best player in the country this year in Baker Mayfield. So, um, you know, it's going to be a real challenge for Wisconsin. But, you know, this is a team that, you know, again, that 59 to nothing loss to, to Ohio State um, in the Big Ten title game was really the anomaly. When you look at Wisconsin – they're always in games. I mean, even with Alabama a few years ago, they, they weren't blown off, off the field in that opener. Um, you know, they beat LSU last year. So they've shown they can be on the field with teams that recruit at a higher level than they do. And let's face it, whoever they're going to face in the playoff, whether it's Clemson, whether it's Oklahoma, whether it's uh, Auburn, any, Georgia, any teams like that, they have higher-rated recruits than Wisconsin. But what Wisconsin has is tremendous coaching and tremendous development and they max out their ability, and that's not the case with every team in the country this year. I'd say it's not the case with USC. I don't think it's been the case with Ohio State on a consistent basis. So I think that they would be able to compete with just about anybody. Adam, let's uh, switch over to the college football coaching mess, mainly Tennessee this week, uh, and, of course, Florida State with Jimbo Fisher yesterday. I want to start with Jimbo Fisher, even though Tennessee's been the bigger store for the last uh, week or so. I'm surprised. I put the money aside, the ten-year deal aside, and that's I mean, that's a big reason why he's going to A and M. But I, I just I don't see A and M being a better job. I, I outside of the money thing, I, I don't know why he is leaving Florida State. Why do you think he's leaving Florida State when you put the money aside? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's it's it may just be time, and, and that's hard okay. for people to understand. But I think there's been you know tension there for for quite some time. Um, you know, with things that he wants and maybe not getting every single thing that he wants. And I don't think the relationship with uh, athletic director Stan Wilcox is particularly good. And he is joining an athletic director in Scott Woodward at, at A&M, who, whom he worked with at uh, LSU when they were all there together under Nick Saban. And I do think from talking to coaches in the ACC who know Jimbo, you know, he, he craves being in the SEC again. I, I think that that environment for some coaches, and we've seen this in some of the coaching searches, they don't want the pressure of that. They don't want the constant attention and all in and, and all the, you know, all this money just with everything around the SEC. There's so great, incredible investment. I think Jimbo does want that. I think he wants to go to a place that they won't have any shortages, whether it's a uh, uh, recruiting budget, uh, assistant coach salary pool, facilities. You know, they have not won there, and that's a mystery, but they have everything that they need to win. And now they have a coach who has won a national championship. So I think there is a little bit of, hey, I want to be part of that top league 
where everybody is putting all the money in and going against the best coach in the country on a yearly basis and Nick Saban. And if I can't get it done, I can't get it done. But I would agree with you that if you told me Jimbo Fisher was going to spend the next 10 years at Florida State versus A&M and how many national titles he'd win, I guarantee you he'd win another national title at Florida State. I can't make that same guarantee at Texas A&M. What happened with the fall off this year? What What do you think happened? And by the way, do you well, think he, that affects how he feels about? Once you won a national championship, everything after. I mean, if you don't win another one, uh, you failed, right? Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, they lost their quarterback, as you guys know, in the first game, and they weren't well prepared behind him, and that certainly falls on Jimbo Fisher in some circumstances. They had some quarterbacks leave the program who would have, uh, you know, be able to step in and maybe do a little better. In, in relief of DeAndre Francois than James Blankman, who is a true freshman, uh, did. You know, and then defensively, they've fallen off. And this is another factor here, guys, is that Jimbo has tremendous loyalty to his staff. I mean, you saw what happened with the fan after one of their games this year who, who wanted him to, to change the staff, and he gets into a shouting match. So you know, he, he really does have loyalty to these guys, but he would have had to make staff changes. He would have had to have done what Brian Kelly did at Notre Dame after last year. And I don't know if he wanted to do that. So, you know, maybe this way, either he keeps some of those uh, staff members or he uh, can get rid of them in a sense of, Hey guys, I'm taking another job. I need to compile a different type of staff here. It's a new state. It's a new recruiting area and so forth. So that was definitely a factor. A lot of the coaches on Florida state staff have are, are holdovers from the Bobby Bowden era guys. So um, wow. I think this is a little bit of a fresh start situation for Jimbo, or maybe he will take some of those coaches with him to College Station. Well, that's that's transition into the Tennessee situation. Just uh, I, I don't even know what's going on down there. Just they've talked to so many coaches throughout the week, um, and I, I just didn't see coming what happened yesterday and uh, with Philip Former returning and then as AD prior to yesterday. Anyway, I I just the AD was John Kirby was there less than a year, only there about eight months or so. What is going on down in Tennessee? Is this the right move to fire the AD in the middle of a coaching search? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, we'll, we'll, time will tell. I mean, this you know this search has had so many twists uh, in the last you know really in the last five six days, but in the last few weeks, you know, Philip Fulmer is uh, a guy who I think we lo- you know loves Tennessee. He spent his entire life there, but he's also been um, uh, a bit of a backstabber at times. Did that with John Majors. And, uh, you know, for people that I talked to, um, you know, he, he, he was very much supportive of the move to get rid of John Curry and insert himself into this process. So you hear words like sabotaging the search and, and all that. Um, uh, it, it's really been a mess there. Now, could Tennessee still end up with a good coach? Absolutely. Is Philip Fulmer capable of finding a good coach? Absolutely. But um, I do think that this it will stain Tennessee for years to come. I talking to coaches. I mean, between us guys, I saw Greg Schiano today in Ohio State's hotel and, and just told him how much I felt for him because uh, what, whatever you think of him as a coach, I don't think anyone should have to go through that type of public embarrassment, especially a coach's family, uh, to be dragged through the mud like Tennessee fans did. And and we'll see how, who they end up with as their next coach. Yeah, with, with really out any hardcore evidence that he was involved at the thing with Penn State. Right. I mean, yeah, your name gets mentioned, and nobody wants you know you don't want your name mentioned with something like that. But if you, there's no evidence to tie you to that and strong evidence then why are you just losing your mind like that as a fan base and letting a fan base control things like that I mean how hard is this going to make Philip Fulmer's job to find a guy who's going to come in that can actually coach in the SEC and recruit in the SEC 
Right. Well, you know, again, I think he's got a tough job ahead. Um, now, he's somebody who's respected in the coaching fraternity, understandably, because of his success and his longevity. Um, and, uh, you know, I, again, I, I, I don't know exactly where they turn here. I think Mike Leach would have been a good option because one thing about Mike Leach, guys, whatever you think of him, he doesn't care what you think of him. He doesn't um, care. So, That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, he, yeah, he, he could walk in there and <laughs> either they'd be celebrating him, and I think they would because he, he's quirky and he's different and he's – He's um, hilarious you know, he, in postgame. He, he, it wouldn't he, matter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but, but even, if they, even if they had their pitchforks out, guys, and they were protesting like they did for Greg Schiano or like they would have for Dave Doran, um, I don't think Mike Leach would have cared. And so that's, I think, one of the criteria now because it's so unique. Not only do you have to find you know, the right coach, quote-unquote, uh, but you also have to find somebody who can step in and not uh, get overwhelmed by what has become. The coaching moves. Is Dan Mullen uh, the right guy for, for the Florida Gators? They've struggled uh, the last couple of coaches they've had there. Is he, is he the right move? I, I, I think so, yeah. I think this, you know, again, was not the first choice but I think it was maybe the right choice. And um, for what they need right now, that was what you just said, and that's important to remember. What Florida needs right now is an offense, and what Florida needs right now is quarterback development, and what Florida needs right now is somebody who understands how to do those two things at Florida. Now, Dan Mullen knows how to do that. You know, he did it uh, as the Florida offensive coordinator under Urban Meyer when they won two national titles. You know, he, he did it in Mississippi State, uh, a school with, with far less resources than Florida, than Florida has had. I mean, Dak Prescott and Nick Fitzgerald, have been two of the better quarterbacks in the SEC in the last five years. Those are both Dan Mullen guys. So I, I think, um, you know, he played it very well because he was probably at the top of Tennessee's list. He certainly could have stayed in, in Mississippi State where they have a really good team next year. And Joe Moorhead, I think, is going to do really well with that team. But, uh, you know, Florida was the job that he wanted, and I think it, it's going to work out well for both sides. Adam Rittenberg joining us for just a couple more minutes. Give him a follow on Twitter at ESPN Rittenberg. Adam, I wanted to talk to you about the uh, the buyouts, uh, especially for Brett Bielema. I think we all got in the wrong business. I didn't play football. Maybe I should have played football and, and then became a coach, and uh, and maybe we could have made some money. But the buyout, almost $12 million, is that what it's going to be? It's negotiated right now. It's not final. Yeah, so, so guys, my, my, uh, in my next life, <laughs> I want to be a fired. I want to be a fired coach. Yeah. Who Neil, Corn, Neil Cornrich is my agent. Neil represents Brett Bielema. Neil represents Todd Graham, who had just got a twelve million dollar buyout oh. to be fired from Arizona State. He also represents Kirk Ferentz. So uh, I think that's my goal in life: is to be a fired coach represented by Neil. Man, that guy. That guy's getting it done. I, he's he's getting paid too. <laughs> just think that the the agent gets part of the buyout. <laughs> sure, sure I think I'd rather be an agent. I don't have to do anything. Well, I don't yeah. even have. I don't have to coach to get fired. Just just give me the part. Of, give me a percentage. Adam, the, the three of us are going to start an agency at, at this moment. We've officially—I don't know what we're going to call it yet—but the three of us have just started an agency. That's Adam. What what's what's the end of this? What's the end game on all this? The seventy-six million dollars we figured out. Thirteen coaches are going to get seventy-six million for not coaching. What's your thought? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean it's interesting, Lauren. Like you know, I, I've talked to some people around the sport, you know, in the last few weeks about are, are we nearing the end of, of the massive buyout? Um, and, but, you know, coaches also need protection, you know, because you know, as you guys know, it used to be five years you had as a coach. Now it's three. So, you know, how many coaches are going to be willing to you know, go to a school knowing that, that they don't get it done in three years? They're going to be fired without having that buyout. So I know athletic directors would love to eliminate it because it makes them look bad. It's a lot of bad money you know, to, 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 to pay a coach not to coach. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, 
you know, no one's, you know, I mean, and they're, again, what Jimbo got at, at Texas A&M, what he's reportedly going to get, the length of that contract, 10, 10 years, and the amount of money is not going to be the norm. Um, what Scott Frost will likely get at Nebraska is not going to be the norm in terms of the length of the contract. Oh, you I think, think that's a done deal? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fra- that, Fra- be okay. He'll be, he'll be the coach before the end of the weekend. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, normally it's going to be shorter, shorter time spans. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be, you know, four or five-year contracts, but then you have to protect the coach with some money on the back end. So it, it's going to be fascinating to see how this environment where there's so much impatience and so much angst whenever coaches start to lose uh, changes everything. Any chance that the Florida State opening – I know, Scott, Nebraska is home. His family's in Nebraska – it's going to be hard to turn down trying to turn around that program. Any chance that Florida State now being open keeps him in Florida because he's a hot name out there? Yeah, I mean, again, I, and, and I should say you never say never with coaching. They could always change their mind. But I have heard from so many people uh, in and around the program, including uh, other and other athletic administrators, that basically that deal is done, that it was agreed upon early this week just needs to be signed. The assistants on the staff are already prepared to either join Scott in Nebraska or maybe remain on the UCF staff, depending on what they do with their next coach. Um, so I, I think right now the uh, amount of money that he's going to get paid and the emotional pull of going back home to Nebraska is, is going to be too much. I mean, one thing to also keep in mind with, with Frost, uh, is Willie Taggart, the Oregon yes. coach, is believed to be the top target at Florida State. So if he leaves Oregon, there's another program where Scott has had success uh, as an assistant coach, where he might be interested. But again, I, I really believe that in the next uh, 24 to 36 hours, you're going to see Scott Frost introduced as the new head coach in Lincoln. Two two words of advice, two things of advice for you: don't put down your phone and don't turn off Twitter today because you're probably you're going to miss something <laughs> if you do. Just a, no doubt. It was wild yesterday, especially I was driving down to Indianapolis, and all these stories are are popping up. So uh, yeah, it'll be a wild day, guys. But uh, appreciate you guys having me on and. Enjoy, uh, enjoy the games today. You do the well, same, you, sir. You help us a lot every football season, Adam. We really appreciate it and enjoy the game today. You don't have to worry about any coaching stuff uh, over there. This is Ohio State and Wisconsin, and they have continuity. <laughs> and that's that's <laughs> they why do. they're there. They do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, appreciate it, guys. Thanks. Bye-bye. That is Adam Rittenberg of ESPN. Give him a follow on Twitter at ESPN Rittenberg. He's got it all covered. Uh, lots of contacts across the country. Covers college football. He's a, for ESPN. Is also ESPN Insider and just has tons of information across the country. Focuses on the Big Ten at times as well. We're going to take a timeout. Actually, let's get a couple. I'll read a couple of your text messages. Coming up at ten o'clock, we're going to switch over to Illini football. A lot of transfers this week. I believe Lauren. The number is at seven. I think right now. Uh, three more yesterday. Uh, so I think I'm double-checking. I think it's a seven. Ryan Easterling will join us, give us his thoughts on the transfers, which was expected. Some transfers were expected. We'll get his thoughts on that. And then recruiting. Signing day is just 18 days away. The early signing period, the first time this has been in place here this, this season, December 20th, is when players can first sign their national letter of intent, which I love, instead of waiting all the way to February. So be good. Uh, to see where the recruiting class is shaping up right now. A couple text messages to get to this morning on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line that Bill text in. Allstroke was wide open at the three-point line when Lucas got blocked. That is from Bill. Again, I did not see the replay. I will take your word for it for sure. And so uh, it's I'm sure someone was open because he was also, um, Lucas was forcing his way into the lane. Bill also text in, this team reminds me of the fly and Alani without the fly. 
309, text on the Castle Heating Cooling text line. Yeah, yeah I would agree without the fly. It's not a lot that's, of fly. That's a pretty good line. That's a pretty good line. Can we, can we use that, Bill? We might keep that. Uh, Io DeSumo is not a true point guard. We, I'm aware of that, but he can, he can, he's pretty good. Uh, he did not play point guard last year for Morgan Park. Uh, yeah, it's true. And, and, and earlier, Alan made a comment about Mark Smith. Mark Smith is not a true point guard either. I think your only true point guard on this roster at the moment is, is Tijon Lucas. And I, I, I don't think there's a, another true, true only point guard on this roster right now. Would you agree? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm waiting to see how Fraser evolves because That's if true. he starts making baskets, you'll see an entirely different player. This guy probably is wondering, like most freshmen, what happened to me? Yeah. He, he's a great shooter, but he's mm -hmm. not shooting. This happens all the time with freshmen. It, it might be another year. It took uh, two years for Jordan. But this guy's got a lot more moves than Jordan yeah. does. And he's left-handed, and he's got he's got some really clever stuff, but he's he's just got to mature. Yeah, I, I like Trent Frazier a lot. I, re I really do. But and I don't think it'll be this year. I don't, no, I don't either. It doesn't either. look like it. It's a freshman, and I, I say this every week now, it seems like lately. Illinois doesn't have the five-star freshman like Duke has all over their roster. Freshmen are going to take some time to contribute at a high level, uh, and especially the guys Illinois has right now. They have a five-star coming in next year. We'll see how they contribute. Uh, 217 text from the Castle Heating and Cooling text line. As players bail out, is Illinois football a sinking ship? Absolutely not. Uh, again, we're going to talk to Ryan Easterling about that. Again, this was expected that some players would transfer. We didn't have names when the season ended last Saturday evening. But it was expected that some players were going to transfer. It's not a surprise. Uh, Lovey wants his guys in there. So far, I believe everyone that has announced their intentions to transfer were not Lovey's recruits. Well, he doesn't. Ha he has one recruiting class, and none of the freshmen have left. Hang uh, on a minute. Let, let me disagree with that. Okay. okay don't, go ahead. Yeah. Every player on that team's Lovey's player. Well, I meant recruit. I know it. But That's I don't what care. I, mean. I don't That's care true. who recruited him. Yeah. Uh, do you care who who uh, uh, Underwood recruited? Absolutely not. He I didn't recruit. You know, I mean. There's he a lot of John Gross's players on this team. I mean, sure, and that's true all across the country mm -hmm. with all teams. I mean, you can't just wait for your player. If you wait for his players, it'll be four years into the system, and if he isn't winning, they'll be looking to buy out his contract. And I want, I want, to, I want you to. We'll have that point with Ryan. Uh, what you just mentioned. I, I just believe that. I, I don't understand. I agree with I mean, you. You inherit those players. They're your players yep. from that moment on, and. Is, are, is Illinois losing something in these transfers? Absolutely losing something. Yep. Depth is so critical in football. They were down to 76 players this year, first of all, had that many. Then they had 18 that were injured. You're in the 50s. And they had a lot of – now, look, some of these guys wouldn't have been starting had everybody been healthy. But Pat Nelson started the last game. Trey Watson started and played all the way mm -hmm. the last game. Uh, they had – a number of players who uh, Odinabo Odinabo started and played uh -huh. extensively the last game started these were starters yep don't tell me that it doesn't matter no <laughs> it does no it absolutely, I know I, I I did not say it doesn't I matter mean, it does matter better than somebody in order to start yeah it, it does matter they're leaving I'm I, I'm not saying it doesn't matter especially several of the guys you just mentioned we're gonna talk to Ryan Easterling about that coming up. Uh, here in just a few minutes, get his thoughts on the particular guys that have transferred, the impact to the team, and as Lauren mentioned, the depth, which I think is the key word right there, depth of the roster. Is that a concern once again? We'll okay. talk to Ryan Easterling about that coming up next here on DWS. <laughs> Welcome 
back to Saturday Sports Talk here on DWS. He's Lauren Tate. I'm Michael Kaiser. Thanks for joining us on this Saturday morning, 10.04, 43 degrees on our way to a high of nearly 60 degrees on this December 2nd. Definitely going to take that for this time of year. Please be joined now by Ryan Easterling. Ryan, good morning. How are you? Doing great. Got my coffee. Good to go. Yeah, I'm, I might need some coffee, though. I'm still, Lauren and I, are, and everybody's still exhausted from the Illini basketball game last night, so... That was an intense game uh, throughout. But we want to talk some Illini football with you and uh, some transfers. I believe the number is seven so far uh, since Saturday night. Is, is that the most up-to-date number for transfers so far? I believe that's the number, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, obviously the most critical of those would be Trey Watson, yes. Pat Nelson. You lose a guy like Julian Jones. And their linebacking core, uh, you lose a lot of production. You lose a lot of guys that have played a lot of snaps. So, you know, while you kind of understand why, some of these guys might have transferred. Uh, that's a lot of production that they're going to have to replace in a very short amount of time. Do you think, uh, in Trey Watson's case and Julian Jones's case, the main reasons would be because they want to win and you know they're not most likely going to win next year, or are there other issues with those guys? I think that was the big reason for, for Trey, at least. Um, you know, With a guy like Julian, I think you could see that he flashed potential at times, but he was kind of inconsistent as far as his production. He was in and out of the lineup. You know, sometimes he would make a wild play, and then sometimes he would totally disappear. But with a guy like Trey, I, I think he really wants to win. He was extremely competitive. And, you know, in a lot of ways, Trey's transfer reminds me of T.J. Neal's from a few years yes. ago, mm-hmm. where a new staff comes in. You've got a guy that led your team in tackles the year prior, uh, has a lot of potential. They're, they're very similar players, and um, they just want to start fresh their senior year uh, at another place and, and just kind of get – put the pass behind them and, and move forward somewhere else. Ryan Easterling of scout.com. Give him a follow at Ryan Easterling for Illini football recruiting news. Well, as, as we look at this situation, Odenabo also left and I, it was, I just kind of laughed when I heard he was transferred only because of the flag incident last Saturday. Was he just not um, gelling and meshing with, with this coaching staff? I, I know Lovey was very upset with that play at the end of the game. I, I don't think that play had anything to do with him leaving, but uh, was he just not um, gelling with his coaching staff? I don't know if it was just that. I mean, if you look at it, too, there were other guys in the rotation ahead of him. Uh, this sometimes his play was inconsistent as well. Um, he uh, he had a hard time getting into the rotation with guys like Jamal Milan. You saw Tymir Oliver take a real big step forward this past offseason and play well this year. Uh, Kenyon Jackson was in there quite a bit. Uh, and then you're gonna, you, know, you have a couple guys coming in uh, that are going to be – you know, freshman this coming year, or you had a redshirt freshman in Kendrick Green, uh, they're probably going to pass him up. So, uh, you know, all of that on top of what happened that day. Plus, you got to remember he had a suspension earlier in the year, That's so right. it wasn't necessarily his first offense. Um, so, you know, it, it could have been a mutual decision. Uh, it's probably best for Tito to seek something else, uh, just given the depth chart, given his history with what's happened to the program, and just kind of having that clean break and, and getting away from here and, and going and starting somewhere new. The only thing I will say about it is that when you start somebody and play them extensively in the last game of the season, it's kind of a stunner to me to look up and see the guy bumped off the team. And I think that a lot of these is, a lot of these are mutual. In other words, they're sitting down. He's having the, the end-of-season reviews with the players, and they're discussing things, and he's indicating to them that they don't, in most cases – uh, they don't maybe fit into his program. And he also has made a statement that he has not settled in on whether he's going to bring back Crouch. I don't know about uh, Hilton. I doubt he's another fifth-year guy. He's not. He's said that he's not necessarily going to bring back fifth-year guys because he's not 
obliged to do that. He's only required to, uh, to uh, provide scholarships for four years. He's not, he's not uh, uh, in any way by NCAA rules uh, obliged to go beyond that. Uh, but to have three guys that started the final, Nelson started the final game, Watson started the final game. Now, the Watson problem was resolved uh, probably two months ago when uh, Levy and the family got into it uh, over when he was injured. And, and I, I think I knew back then that Watson was going to finish out the season. I'm surprised they used him as much as they did. But they basically had to. I don't, I, I, I'm really concerned about the depth, uh, Ryan, more than anything else. How is this going to impact the two deep, not necessarily the starters, but the two deep? Well, Illinois is kind of in a unique situation here where they had to play so many freshmen this year. Um, a lot of them were, were for, they had, they pretty much had to because of depth reasons. Uh, in some cases they chose to play freshmen. Uh, and I know in a few cases it upset some of the upperclassmen who got played over. Right. Now, as far as the fifth year transfers are concerned, you know, as bad as this sounds, that kind of happens at every program, at yeah. least every major program, you'll have guys that are pretty much told, Hey, you know, it's probably better for your future and ours that you play somewhere else for your fifth year. Um, some guys don't take that well. Some guys do. And some guys understand it. It's a tough conversation to have, but it's one that happens at a lot of programs. But given that Illinois is losing all that production, um, this is a critical, critical off season for them as far as developing the players that are going to be getting all those tackles with guys like Pat Nelson and Trey Watson, two of the team's best tacklers um, put up this year. And so, you know, this is where the coaches are really going to have to earn their money as far as their ability to teach. Uh, they're going to have to develop a lot of young talent very quickly to get them ready, not only for the spring, but just for the fall without a whole lot of veteran experience on the team. Um, you know, I, I think you kind of see expect some of this to happen whenever you have coaching turnover, maybe a little sooner than it did. But at the same time, I mean, every, every time that a new regime comes in, and, and there's this discussion about whether it's their guys or not. Understand that they're all on the roster, but they kind of have a type of player that they want to they want to go with. They recruit a different type of player, and so it's you could see where a coaching staff may want to kind of revamp the roster, especially after what uh, Beckman and Cubit have notably left at Illinois. Um, that they want to revamp the roster and kind of build it the way that they want to build it from the ground up. Do you see freshmen playing extensively next season? based on what we know about the uh, incoming class? I think there's an option or an opportunity for a few to play. Uh, given how many freshmen played this year, there are a few positions where I think some freshmen could get in there, cornerback being one of them. Um, you graduate a guy like Jalen Dunlap, and you have Nate Hobbs across from him. Uh, Cameron Watkins, if you can keep him at the nickel, that's better off, I think. Uh, cause, and then that allows you to play a guy like a Ron Harge, in there as a, as a freshman. I don't think you have to throw him in quite as much. Uh, another guy who I think gets in the rotation is Calvin Avery, uh, the, the All-American yes. defensive tackle from mm -hmm. down in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, but the advantage that you have now is that you don't have to play the true freshman next year for significant numbers of snaps like you did this year. Um, I know some people are expecting one of the two freshman quarterbacks they got committed out of high school to come in and play. It's possible. Um, what I think that they've got, though, now is they've got a quarterback competition that's going to push a guy like a Cam Thomas to raise his game because he doesn't really have as much of the option. The quarterback talent level goes up significantly with this incoming recruiting class with guys like M.J. Rivers and Karan Taylor. So as far as the amount of freshmen playing next year, I don't expect it to be as much. I do think they're going to be very underclassmen heavy again. Uh, they're not going to have a whole lot of seniors again this coming year. 
So it's going to be a young team again, but it'll be a team that has a lot of experience just based on what happened this year too. Now they've got at least 20-some scholarships open. By the time this is over, it might even approach 25. They've already got 15 players. Where do they finish now with these last 10? Can they take 10, and uh, do you think they'll be able to take 10? And, and if so, uh, how, how do they stack up? Are most of the guys committed around the country? Well, I think it's, it's been interesting with the way the, uh, the early signing period now has changed things. Uh, some guys are quicker to make commitments and, and plan on signing in December, and some guys are holding off, especially with what's going on with all the coaching changes. The guys don't want to jump into a commitment uh, and then find out that their coach left a week later, end up signed, and then get left at the altar there. One guy that's benefiting Illinois with right now is Virtus Brown. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you're seeing what's you're seeing what's happening there. Illinois might just have a former Florida State commit and a former Chicago native or a Chicago native fall right into their lap. Um, I mean, they did their due diligence the whole time, kept on him. He's always had a very close relationship with Lovey, but that's a byproduct of what's happening right now mm-hmm. with the way that the the signing period process has changed. Um, I think they can still fill in in a few key positions. They'll probably take another wide receiver. I think they're looking at another offensive lineman or two, probably a couple defensive ends. Um, you know, I think they've got 22 available scholarships right now. That number may climb if they have a couple more guys that elect to transfer. Um, but you think about it, this class started originally with, I think, 13 or 14 available spots in this climbs. And we always kind of thought that this would be a class that would end up being in the 20s. Um, you know, if you really didn't see it, but you thought it was possible, and now it, it looks very, very possible that this class is going to end up in the low mid twenties, just based on all the, the turnover. But if Crouch, if Crouch out. does not get a scholarship offer, for his fifth year, how will that impact impact the team, in terms of morale and and the general feeling about what Lovey's doing? Well, I mean, you see a guy that was named the starter before this previous season. Uh, that struggled this year was benched. Yeah, uh, he doesn't figure he doesn't figure in next year. So so should Levy let him go? Well, I mean, I think that's a decision that they have to make together. I don't think that it's necessarily Levy by himself. Um, you know, I, I know that ultimately Levy can make that call. Um, but you know, Chase is close with a lot of guys on the team, especially the upperclassmen. Um, if Chase wants to end up playing a significant role on a team, then maybe it is better for him to go elsewhere. Um, but, you know, if he loves it at Illinois and he wants to be there and is willing to carve out a role somewhere else, I know we saw him play some tight end or H-back this year. If he wants to do that and is committed to doing it, then that might be a possibility to work out. But, I mean, obviously that, that quarterback room is about to get really crowded with a lot of guys that have a better arm than he has. And so that's going to limit his options as far as what he can do um, as a quarterback at Illinois next year. Ryan Easterling of Alana Enquirer joining us on Saturday Sports Talk here on DWS. Give him a follow on Twitter at Ryan Easterling. Uh, pay close attention because it's signing day. He just mentioned uh, December 20th. Ryan, I love that. Uh, I think this is a long time coming. Uh, waiting to February just never made any sense to me. Let's just get this done. I know there's still the February signing date as well, but it's it's great. Um, although there could be some coaching changes then too. You never know. So it make, makes things a little uneasy for those players. Uh, you mentioned Virtus Brown, which which was a, a big one that Illinois. Uh, thank you, Jimbo Fisher. Hopefully, hopefully we can thank Jimbo Fisher. Uh, Houston Griffith, obviously, he's not coming here. Where do you? He's also decommitted. Where do you see him ending up? Notre Dame. Yeah, the most likely landing spot for him is Notre Dame. They they continue to recruit him throughout the season. Um, you know, he's always had kind of a soft spot for Notre Dame. 
even though his dad is, is Howard Griffith and even yeah. though he his first offer came from Illinois when he was real young, he just never really seemed to want to, to follow in the same footsteps as his dad and his dad never really pushed him to follow in the same footsteps. So, you know, when he was down at IMG, Florida State was close, so he could go down and he would be at several of their games. And um, You know, I, I just see him ending up at Notre Dame. There's a lot of Chicago area Catholic guys that have ended up at Notre Dame. and It just makes a lot of sense. You see younger guys like uh, Julian Love that played there early on uh, in their defensive secondary. So there's a good opportunity for him to get plugged in pretty early there. So I, I, I think all the money right now is on him at Notre Dame. Okay. Two other players I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I might pronounce Dallas's last name. Or is it, is it Craddieth or how do you pronounce his last name? Craddith. Craddith. Okay. Where yeah. Where is Illinois at with right? I know they've really focused on him heavily. Where is the Illinois coaching staff with him? And then an, another guy that uh, you and I and, and Lauren have talked about before is Io Odele, Odeoye. Uh He's went to a couple games this year. Uh, so I want to get your thoughts on those two guys. Well, St. Louis has been kind of a tough spot for Illinois this year, considering yeah. they thought they'd have a lot of success there, and it really just hasn't panned out quite yet. Um, the only guy they even have from the St. Louis area right now is uh, Jordan Slaughter, and he's from Belleville. So, you know, those are two big targets left on the board. Uh, right now, with Craddock, it's kind of an Iowa-Illinois battle. Uh, Iowa has the edge, but Illinois is going to get an official visit uh, later this month, and they have a chance to make up some ground there. I think that could make it interesting. Uh, he obviously, especially with the departure of a guy like Pat Nelson, there is playing time available. Um, and Craddock is a guy who I feel could step in right away. He's very instinctive, uh, could step in and play right away and hold his own. Uh, kind of similar to Bennett Williams. Um, maybe not on the same level as Bennett is on football IQ, but very few guys are. Um, but Craddock has got, I, th- I think Illinois, if they make up some ground, can make it interesting. Uh, right now, the the lean is towards Iowa, but I think they, if they really hit a home run on the official visit, they could, they have a chance to swing in there and get him. Um, Adeoye is a little bit different, though. Yeah. Um, you know, he visited Illinois. He's, he has legitimate interest in Illinois. It's just it, they're going up against Texas, and when you're going up against Texas, even if they're six and six, four and eight, whatever, it's still Texas. Yep. And so, you know, is there a chance? Yeah, door's still open. Um, Ronnie Perkins going to Oklahoma instead of Texas kind of helped in that regard in that he's less swayed towards Texas or less, you know, less likely to remain cemented there for sure. But, you know, I, th- I think Illinois is really fighting an uphill battle on that one. Uh, it would be great to get a guy like him, given the linebacker departures. You know, you can, again, sell very, very early playing time to a guy like that with everybody that's left. Um, but again, they, I just, th- I just think maybe that one's too far gone. Um, okay. But you never doubt them. Staff closed very, very well last year. And so they could always pull a rabbit out of the hat come signing day if that, uh, if that comes to play. Ryan, I, I don't know where I read everything. I get so many. I, I'm involved with Twitter and other things so much that I don't know where I heard some things. But I, I read something the other day, and maybe you can help me, that in going against Northwestern for a great number of more than nearly roughly two dozen players, that Illinois didn't beat Northwestern on any of them. Did you read that story, or, or would, does that make any sense to you? Um, I could see it for some of the in-state prospects. Uh, I mean, they offered a good number of guys that probably had similar offers from Northwestern, given that both schools have pretty stringent academic standards for entry. Um, but, you know, I mean, you look at guys like a uh, perfect example is Greg Newsom. Uh, safety was originally from Glenbard North up here in the Chicagoland area. Ended up down at IMG, committed to Northwestern. That was a guy that Illinois really felt they they wanted to get. It was a 
solid in-state defensive back at a position need, and they, they didn't land him. Um, you know, there are probably several others like that. Uh, Devin O'Rourke is another example from Lincoln Way East, just won a state title in 8A uh, defensive end. You know, it was an Illinois, Northwestern, and Wisconsin battle for him, and Northwestern came out on top. So, I mean, they have they have taken some losses to, to Northwestern on the recruiting trail, but at the same time, uh, you know, they've they've emphasized states like Texas and Florida yeah. pretty heavily. But now. I, I so, guess I'm talking about several years over a period of several years. You know, not not just this year. And before you get uh, get off this subject, what's Ford going to do? The tight end. Uh, I would say the the most likely spot for him would be Georgia. Uh, it seems like he really bonded with them. He's tight with Justin Fields, who's the number one quarterback in the country, and they played on the same team when they were at the opening. So, um, you know, as close as he was to committing to Illinois before he blew up, uh, things really changed once he busted onto the national scene. Um, so I, I think he ends up at Georgia. Uh, if not there, probably Alabama. I know there's some there's some preference in his family for Alabama, but I, I think he, he really wants to go to Georgia. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Illinois and Northwestern go head-to-head all the time in recruiting, and that's going to happen. You know, you're, what, three hours apart, recruiting a lot of the same players from the Chicagoland area. It's going to happen. Um, you know, I'm sure if you look far enough back, there's plenty of years where Illinois beat Northwestern for recruits, but lately it's been Northwestern getting a lot of the guys from the suburban schools in Chicago, whereas Illinois – um, maybe hasn't had that same success uh, up there. It's been it's been kind of weird to see how the Chicagoland area has, has trended on recruiting because really the schools that have done the best up there are Iowa and Notre Dame. So, uh, you know, for Illinois, if they really want to secure the Chicagoland area again, I, and I've said this before, I think it just comes down to wins. You've got to get wins. You've got to show something on the field, make it desirable to go downstate again. Um, and obviously you have a few guys that, that buck that trend like a guy like Ricky Smalling is going to want to go down there anyway but uh, I think you've got to put a product on the field that makes it desirable to turn down schools like Iowa Notre Dame and Northwestern and say no that's the state school I want to go there this is where all all the guys from here go and they've got to set that precedent but I think it's going to take success on the field to make that happen. Well, Ryan, uh, appreciate your time this morning. Great stuff as always, but we'll be keeping a close eye over the next couple of weeks as Sunny Day approaches, and especially keeping a close eye on uh, Mr. Liddyville and Thad Ward. He, I never get tired of watching that guy on Twitter. He is a great follow. Yeah, definitely. Well, Ryan, have a great weekend. Enjoy Championship Saturday and the the results of the college football playoff, uh, at least who makes the college football playoff, coming up uh, between uh, now and uh, tomorrow afternoon. All right, thanks for having me on, guys. Yep. Give Ryan Easterling a follow on Twitter, at Ryan Easterling, uh, Lana Inquirer, and that's scout.com uh, for all your Lana football recruiting news. Well, the, we have a couple text messages we want to get to here before we take a timeout. Coming up at 1030, we'll switch over to Steve Steve Lehman, get his thoughts on the, the Tennessee coaching search. Philip Bulmer is now the athletic director down there, and just been a really wild week. Uh, with Tennessee, and he's uh, right in the thick of it down there, and so we'll get his thoughts from that. A couple text messages on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line uh, from the 785 area code. Do the transfers open up more scholarships, or are we limited to the total number of scholarships that we can, can hand out any given year? We kind of answered that. The number of scholarships did increase from around 13 or 14 to 22, as Ryan mentioned, and uh, the number of scholarships available will increase uh, with each well, 25 is the max in yeah. any year, although you can count back some. Yeah, you can uh, sign. They actually took 26 last year. Yeah, you can sign over 25, but then you got to figure out the math somewhere, and, and uh, coaches always do. 
618 texter says Jim Bain is actually named a defendant in a case in my old contracts book from law school. Iowa t-shirts shop sued him over a perceived bad call. It's really a, a terrible thing because he made a good call and gave the wrong number. Yeah. And they just went crazy. Yeah, you you obviously remember that really well. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it was he I mean, they showed the it was he made the right call on the play underneath the basket. The problem was that when he came out, he gave a, a different player's number and then the Iowa fans was, "Well, that player that, that, that did you charge the foul on? He's standing over there. He wasn't even in on the play." Well, Jim made a mistake. I mean, he's human, but he was a good official. He was a longtime uh, overseer of officials and, and uh, was one of the best banquet speakers I ever heard. We'll take a timeout. We'll come back. Uh, the St. Louis Cardinals uh, met with uh, a certain representative of a certain uh, player they're trying to trade for. On the, Coming up again at 1030 is Steve Lehman. That's all coming up here on DWS. <laughs> Welcome back to Saturday Sports Talk here on DWS. He's Lauren Tate. I'm Michael Kaiser. Thanks for joining us on this beautiful Saturday morning here in East Central Illinois. Temperatures are expected to reach around 60 degrees. Right now about 45 degrees at 1028. Well, I mentioned before the break, uh, St. Louis Cardinals have been in heavy pursuit, pursuit of a certain player this offseason. Took the next step last night, John Carlos Stanton, representatives with uh, from him and when the Cardinals met last night in Los Angeles as a part of that process and they could only meet the way I understand it, according to uh, multiple people covering the situation is they can only meet if they have a deal a framework of a deal Major League Baseball will not allow you to a team to meet with representatives for a trade unless there's a framework of a deal in place that's why the Giants got to meet with Stanton representatives and that's why the Cardinals so have the to framework of a deal would be those players that the Cardinals have that they would be willing to trade it for him I mean that would yes. be yes that's correct and so you know the Cardinals have apparently told the Marlins we'll give you a b and c if you give us John Carlos Stanton and the Marlins have said okay we can talk and then once that happens, then they can have a meeting. Now, no word on if Stanton was in that meeting. I don't know if Stanton was a part of the meeting with the Giants or not. Um, you know, my thing with the Giants, 64-98 last year, I, and I've read about this. I don't know the Giants' farm system, but I've read they have a terrible farm system. They went 64-98 and last year. Buster Posey's 31 years old. Madison Bumgarner's 29 years old, and they have about nothing else. Um, he's not going to fix that 34-game under 500 situation, and he wants to go reportedly, or any player does, wants to go to the playoffs. So, But the draw for him out is he grew up in L.A., 18 minutes from Dodger Stadium, mm -hmm. and that's why he wants to go to California. But I want to I tell you this note. This is going to blow your mind, Lauren. Um, you're aware that Florida doesn't have state income taxes, correct? Mm -hmm. Californias are very high. So he's going to go from Florida to California if he does. This is agents that are not – representing Stanton have estimated that it will cost him an additional 20 to 27 million dollars in over, state taxes over how many years uh, over the life of his contract if he goes to California and leaves Florida now obviously Missouri I believe has state taxes so he but it's not as high as California think <laughs> about that 20 to 27 million dollars that he would lose in state income taxes if he leaves Florida period and goes to California I'm I'm good, thanks. I'm I, yeah. I, you know, everybody wants to go home sometimes. 
I don't want to go home if I'm staying. That's a lot of money that you will not have. Well, I heard that the Dodgers, you know, are trying to get back under two hundred million under yeah. salary. Uh, they yeah. they're paying more salary than anybody. But are they paying more than the Yankees? I mean, that, that, that's the two top teams I know. They're they're paid a lot, and that's why I think right now they're on the sidelines for this situation. One other note before we take a timeout again. Steve Lehman in here is the Cardinals traded Ledmes Diaz last night to the Blue Jays for Class A outfielder. That's what they need another outfielder, JB Woodman. Uh, just a little over a year after he made the All-Star team as a rookie, Diaz did and hit I don't 300. Get, I don't get that trade. I don't yeah. understand. I mean, I, I don't think Diaz would have started, but, I mean, he showed an awful lot of potential a year ago. Yeah, he did, and I, I was somewhat surprised by that last night. I know he went down to the Memphis to try to get things uh, situated, uh, get things figured out. He's and got some pop. He does, and so Ledmi's Diaz, no longer a member of the Cardinals organization. He's now with the Toronto Blue Jays. And one other quick note, one definitely need to mention, the Illini volleyball team advanced to the second round of the NCAA tournament last night with a victory over a five-set victory over Hawaii in the opening round. The Illini led that uh, match two sets to none and had to hang on and, and win as Hawaii won the next two sets, and the Illini won the fifth set 15-10. to 10. The Illini played tonight at 9 o'clock Central Time. You can hear that match right here on DWS. Dave Lone on the call taking on Washington Husky, the Washington Huskies who were seated eighth in the NCAA tournament. We'll take a timeout. Coming up next, Steve Lehman is going to join us on the Tennessee coaching situation. A new athletic director, just uh, all kinds of things going wrong for Tennessee. That's up next on DWS. Our first job is to turn around our football program. Our football teams in recent years have struggled for a variety of reasons, but through it all, we have been supported by the most passionate fan base in the country. These great fans deserve teams that make them proud. It will not be easy, and it will take some time, but we will succeed. We first must find us a coach who wants to be at Tennessee, who appreciates the unique opportunity that we have to offer at this very special place at this historical time, and who is driven to win at the highest level of college football. The kind of head coach who will honor our university's values, will be proud to represent our state, and be a role model for our student athletes. Welcome back to Saturday Sports Talk here on DWS. He's Lauren Tate. I'm Michael Kaiser. That was the former head coach of the Tennessee Volunteers, Philip Fulmer, now the acting athletic director. Those comments courtesy of ESPN. Joining us now is Steve Lehman down in Tennessee. Steve, it's been a while. How you been, sir? Michael, good to be on with you this morning. Always nice to be on with reasonable-minded people like yourself and Lauren after a week like this you're giving me way too much credit I appreciate that uh he's a sports anchor at News Channel 5 down in Nashville Tennessee always a really busy man but uh what's been going on since Sunday it's just not something uh I'm a I'm a young guy but I've been around that long but this is one of the craziest coaching searches I've ever seen it's a basically a dumpster fire I love the gif on Twitter where you see the the dumpster fire I mean that that really applies to the Tennessee situation right now um, so many twists and turns. How has it been for you to keep on top of all of this? I think you have to now retire that GIF or GIF or whatever we call it. Yeah, whatever we call it, yeah. There will never be an illustration for someone to use that again that will be 
equal to this. This has been truly an unprecedented situation this week, and it really goes back much further than Sunday, but what everybody paid attention to was the fact that John Curry, the athletic director who'd been on the job for eight months, seemingly had a fairly stealth operation to bring in Greg Ciano, the defensive coordinator at Ohio State, former coach at Rutgers and in Tampa Bay as well, and it got leaked basically as the deal was getting done on Sunday. And all of a sudden, you just had this fan base rise up as one and basically shout from the mountaintops that you absolutely cannot hire this guy. And, and the school acquiesced. Curry backed out of the deal, and they moved on from there. Since then, it's gone through Mike Gundy at Oklahoma State, David Cutcliffe, the former offensive coordinator at Tennessee, now the head coach at Duke. It went to Jeff Brom at Purdue. They thought they had a deal done there. Then that was done. Then it went to Dave Doran, possibly Kevin Sumlin for a moment, certainly mm -hmm. Mike Leach on Thursday night. And it ended yesterday with John Curry, the athletic director, getting fired by the school, placed on administrative leave. But eventually he will be out the door. And then Philip Fulmer, the former football coach, who, by the way, the fan base and administration ran out of town yes. about nine years ago today. Now he's back running the athletic department. It truly is. It's kind of a Game of Thrones meets college football in the SEC type of story. It's really, really bizarre. Well, uh, one thing for you, I, w I would have been happy for you being down in Tennessee. I mean, I know you're in Nashville, but just uh, be closer to the Mike Leach post-game news conferences and the you know the weekly press conference of games. That guy is just so entertaining. So that would have been fun for you to to observe that. Uh, I always enjoy catching those. But my other thing, oh no question, yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, I, 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 I don't want to make coaching change in Champagne, but man, if he was here, we'd have a great time here. There were some reports yesterday, uh, and I don't know if this is true or not. I don't know if you even know. Was it, is there any truth that Philip Fulmer pushed to get the AD job at any point this week, or would, was he off to the side and the school's administration made a decision to get rid of John Curry and then brought in Fulmer? I don't think Fulmer was actively politicking this week to get the job, Michael, but what I can tell you is when they were looking for an athletic director last spring – he was very active okay. in politicking to get the athletic director job. He interviewed with the governor, Bill Haslam, Peyton Manning, and the new chancellor, Beverly Davenport, here in Nashville, actually, for the job. Thought it went well, and then he was informed after the meeting was over, there's this other candidate that people kind of weren't familiar with. He was an off-the-radar guy, John Curry from Kansas State. He ended up being the hire. The backstory there is Curry was in the athletic administration at Tennessee in 2008 when Fulmer was forced out, and he was part of the regime with Mike Hamilton as his right-hand man that essentially pushed Fulmer out the door. So there's always been some bad blood there. Now, how much politicking Fulmer's done over the last eight months, I can't verify that. And what I've been told this week is conflicting reports of how much he undermined or the other word that a lot of people have used is sabotage the search in the process this week. I can't tell you how much of that is true, but what I can tell you, Michael, is that when you have national guys reporting the fact that that's going on and you have some local guys saying unequivocally that's not the case, but you've also had some local guys say, hey, this, this search is over, this guy's been hired, it's going to get locked up this afternoon. And then you have guys saying, eh, that's not what I'm hearing, and then it doesn't happen. Clearly, people are talking out of both sides of their mouth at Tennessee. And so you have differing tracks of these searches and what's actually going on. And so I think when people say, oh, no, he hasn't 
meddled at all here. That's what they're hearing. And I think what they're hearing is true from their sources, but it may not be the complete picture in the athletic department and vice versa on the other side. And that's the biggest problem is they don't have all their ducks in a row. They don't have all their train cars, lengths, whatever <laughs> metaphor you want to use. They just haven't gotten it all on the same page. And that's been abundantly clear this week and a huge problem. Well, let's go back to Shiano. Was it fair to uh, take the position that, that uh, Tennessee ultimately did uh, to uh, drop him? Well, Lauren, I can answer that two ways. I think Greg Schiano was a poor fit for Tennessee. Okay. Because the way I describe him is he's Butch Jones heavy. Butch Jones' biggest problem at Tennessee is the fact that he is a very stubborn guy. It's kind of a my way or a highway type of thing that by the end of his tenure, players, I think, kind of wanted to punch, punch a brick wall after dealing with Butch as opposed to run through a brick wall for a coach. And Shiano, by all accounts, is even more so. One former Tampa Bay Bucks player described him as my way or right. bleep you right. type of thing. So I think that was a very poor fit. Clearly he wasn't popular with the fan base. The problem I have with what happened on Sunday, Lauren, is this wasn't a fan base rising up and just saying, he's not a good coach. We don't think he belongs here or he should be our coach. They latched on to this yeah. sort of rumor out there that right. he was involved with the Penn State stuff, and that's triple hearsay. That's a deposition yes. from someone who heard something from someone else who said something may have happened that was vague and unspecific in decades after the fact by someone who never worked with Shiano, was never on the staff with him, and never spoke to him. And by the way, Mike McQuarrie testified for hundreds of hours and worked hand-in-hand with the Attorney General, who aggressively prosecuted everyone who had anything to do with the cover-up at Penn State, and he never once mentioned Greg Schiano until he was involved in his own civil lawsuit against the school for his whistleblower status, which he eventually won, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, is it possible what he said was accurately portrayed and happened? Sure, I guess. But the way America works is triple hearsay is not often admissible in court. And certainly, if no one decides to pursue it, it's never been pursued civilly. By the way, Greg Schiano is famous and has a lot of money. He's never been implicated in, in any of those things. Yep. Once you get past that point, it shouldn't be a disqualifying fact for you getting a future job. And that's what Tennessee made it on Sunday, and I just think that's frankly unfair. Yeah. Okay. Now, where does uh, Tennessee go from here? <laughs> now, who, that's the million-dollar question. Who will take the job? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's what we've been asking all week, and what we've seen is people consider it on varying levels. I mean, I, I truly, I know Mike Gundy pretty well. Covered Oklahoma State for years before I moved from Tulsa to Nashville. And from everybody I talked to around Coach Gundy in Oklahoma State on Tuesday, they were very concerned, and they believed that he was very much considering this job, and it wasn't just a ploy for him to get more money or resources. And that was because Tennessee was offering him $7 million a year. They were going to make him the third highest-paid coach in the country. And I think that's the thing now. Tennessee is going to have to speak with its pocketbook, And if that speaks loudly enough, someone could be interested in doubling their salary or something and coming in and being the head coach. But what we saw time and time again this week is people consider it and then ultimately decide for whatever reason, the fans and the pressure or the administration and their lack of organization. And I heard reports this week that a candidate would talk to John Curry 
and he would feel like he had a great conversation, felt good about the job, and then he'd hear from someone else involved with Tennessee that would be like, ah, eh, you're kind of a backup candidate kind of thing. You know, so it's been two different searches going on at once, and that's been a problem. If they can clean all that up and are still willing to pay, I think they've got a chance to still get a good coach. But you're right, Lauren. I mean, it's been a mess this week. The brand of Tennessee football has certainly taken a hit on the national level and within coaching circles as well. So they're going to have to do a job to convince someone to come take all this on. What's the brand of Tennessee overall in sports beyond football, including football? I think it's, I think it's a good one. I, I think it's a school that has a passionate fan base, obviously. You're talking about a place that puts 100,000 people into the stadium basically every week. I mean, at the end of the season, think about this. Tennessee did not win an SEC game this year. It's the worst season record-wise in school history. And the second to last week of the season, they had 90,000-plus seats sold for the LSU game, and really a good crowd considering they played in basically hurricane-like conditions that night. You just don't get that many places. Obviously, people in Champaign are well aware of the struggles and what that means to – attendance at memorial stadium right that's not a problem at tennessee so that should be attractive to a lot of people the resources are way up there beautiful football facility and other things the basketball arena is very nice been redone in recent years seats about twenty thousand people so facilities and resources and passion none of that is an issue but you're talking now a 10-year problem within athletics administration they're now on their fourth athletic director in that time they will whoever this next coach is will be their fifth head coach in 11 football seasons that's the type of stability or instability that will ruin any tradition in any program in the direction it's trying to go steve lemon joining us here on saturday sports talk on dws lauren tate michael kaiser with you steve is the sports anchor at news channel 5 down in nashville tennessee i've only visited nashville once since i've been an adult a great town i'm sure you have a good time down there one of the things that was I, I'd never believed was the the John Gruden rumors. Um, was that more of a fantasy by fans, more so than ever serious talk in terms of at least reaching out to John? Ah, yes, the groomers. That's <laughs> the what, groomers, I love that. That's what they've been called down here for quite some time. I think anybody who's in the know thought that was a very far-fetched idea. And frankly, it's come up every year since he's been out of coaching. Yeah. And I think going back to Philip Fulmer, when they eventually hired Lane Kiffin, people had rumors about could Tennessee get John Gruden. And it all stems from the fact that he started as a graduate assistant at Tennessee and he met his wife at Tennessee. And I do think there's a special spot in his heart for Tennessee because of that. But you're talking about a guy between his job at ESPN and EA Sports for the video games and all the camps that make something like 12 or $13 million a year oh, wow. to not coach football, to not stay up and work 80 hours a week and game plan and then have to go to Friday night football games and text message recruits all the time. That's his life right now. And I think he's been tempted to come back and coach because he's a competitive guy. But I think two things. One, anybody who knows him says he wants nothing to do with recruiting and the hour limits in college football. And two, he doesn't want to give up that lifestyle to go back into the stress and rigors of it, at least not yet. And so he's always been linked, and fans have always wanted it as this fantasy out there that they could get John Gruden. But for those people in the know, they've frankly just been rumors. And frankly, it's done a huge disservice, I think, for Tennessee in all of these searches. Because essentially they've started from square one of – John Gruden's the home run hire, 
well, if that's not realistic at all, but half your fan base believes it is, I think <laughs> that's the standard. When then you offer up Greg Schiano on Sunday. That's a big drop-off, okay, yeah. Junior coach, that's a huge drop-off. Yeah. Not the Tampa Bay Buccaneers coach that they wanted, by the way. No, no, definitely not. They could have gotten Herman Edwards if they moved a little yeah, faster. What is <laughs> which, that about? Which, which, by the way, guys, uh, I've talked to several people around college football this week. That is a concurrently fascinating coaching search that everybody's kind of shaking their head at. If Tennessee wasn't such a mess, people would be talking about Arizona State. Did you realize Ray Anderson, their athletic director, is a former coach's agent whose one-time client was Herm Edwards? I mean, think about that. Arizona oh, State well, he knew hired him. an athletic director. Yeah, hired an athletic director who fired a coach who's like 16 or 17 games above 500 at Arizona State. Just went seven and five this season. Has put up record offenses and things like that. And he replaced him with an NFL coach who hasn't been in college for decades, hasn't coached for a decade, yep. and is one of his former clients. I mean, this is insa- that's, that's near insanity. Hard to believe it in itself. Well, I'm sure that makes you feel a little bit better than with the Tennessee. Then I mean that—that's uh, you know, no, no, okay. Well, I, I mean, I still think Tennessee tops the cake, but it's just to put it in perspective for Tennessee terms. Ole Miss got a two-year bowl ban yesterday and all sorts of sanctions for everything that they've done in terms of recruiting violations and NCA rule violations and things like that. And nobody's even talking about it in yeah. SEC country mm-hmm. because that's how big of a mess Tennessee is. Well, I want to ask you uh, uh, about Les Miles. Uh, he's reportedly interested in the job and would like to talk to Tennessee. Should Tennessee call him? I think at this point, if anyone's interested in the job, Tennessee should sit back and talk <laughs> to them and figure out what their what their plan is for it. I, I don't personally think Les Miles is probably the right choice okay. for the job. I think a guy like Kevin Sumlin out there, if he has any interest, I'd pay him big bucks to come in and do it. I think there's other guys that you might be able Mike Norvell at Memphis, who's coaching today against Scott Frost in the Conference USA Championship game. I think he's a rising star and would be a great fit at either Arkansas or Tennessee, frankly. Mike Leach, if they could get back on the phone with him and somehow make that happen. Jeff Brom at Purdue. There are guys out there that I think they could offer big money to that would be better fits for it but yeah who knows how interested those guys are so if Les Miles a former national champion coach wants to have a piece of the action and is interested in the job absolutely take his phone call well so who's going to actually do make the decision is Fulmer I mean does he have a group of people around him that are going to help him make the decision or is this his uh, great question Lord I, I mean I think it's Fulmer's choice here he's the athletic director but Again, that comes back to how unified now is the fan base and maybe most importantly the mega dollar boosters because it was clear during the last week they weren't unified at all for John Curry. Now, Fulmer, ironically enough, because it was nine years ago this week that they ran him out of town, somehow he is a unifying figure for a lot of people. And so maybe that will organize everything here and help him out. But I think ultimately it'll be his decision and his back on the line with this. Well, Steve, we're running short on time. We talked yesterday. We might uh, run long, but we can probably go well past noon today, at least uh, well, it'd be past one your time. But uh, we'll just continue watching this coaching search by watching Lane Kiffin troll Tennessee and Alabama on Twitter. That guy's Twitter game is something else. His Twitter game is very strong. And by the way, I think he's a great coach. Yeah. The amazing thing that sort of brings this all full circle is literally nine years ago, they ran Fulmer out of town. They hired Lane Kiffin 
who then left them in the dark of night after one season, and they were hanging him in effigy in the town square and things like that. And now there are actually people at <laughs> Tennessee who rooted for Fulmer to push out Curry and come back and hire Kiffin. I mean, that's how full circle and how crazy this thing has gotten. There are people who would actually be happy with Fulmer as the athletic director and Kiffin as the head coach once again in Tennessee. Uh, what universe is the land of Ten- Knoxville, Tennessee in? It's not a universe that I'm a part of. I, that's They're just, on Rocky Top. Yeah, Rocky Top. Before we let you go, <laughs> I want to get you. Former line assistant Roger Powell and, uh, and Bryce Drew are doing some pretty good things with Vandy basketball, which is right there in your backyard. Um, two five-star kids and, the, the you know, Darius Garland and, and the other guy just ranked 13th in the country, ranked 6th in the country. Vanderbilt's doing well in recruiting. Uh, they're doing a great job. Uh, off to a bit of a rocky start here in year two with the team on the floor. They just don't have much of an inside presence. And so far, their outside guys who are proven haven't dropped the ball very well. And that's been a problem early on. But they have momentum on the recruiting trail for sure. They got Darius Garland, who's a local kid, one of the best point guards in the country, a five-star guy who's either 11th or 13th, depending on yeah. where you look at the rankings, which was the highest-rated recruit they've ever gotten, by the way, at that point. And then about a week later, they got a kid named Semisola Shitu, who's a, a Canadian-born kid playing at a prep school in the Northeast. He's the number six-rated recruit in the country, great swing man who comes in, another five-star. And there's another one that people believe is on the way. So they could have three of their highest-rated recruits ever in the same class. This is probably going to be a top two or three class in the country and certainly will give them a great foundation to build off what they've already done getting to the NCAA tournament last year in their first season here and really try and build something of the basketball program here at Vanderbilt. Be careful if you get too many good players. They'll only stay one year. (laughs) Uh, That's true. Although, you know, some people like Coach K and John Calipari have used that formula pretty well. Oh, yeah, if you can do it year after year. Right, but I think every coach will take a kid with that much talent, even if he means he's only there for a year. Steve Lehman, great stuff. Uh, really good to catch up with you uh, and get some good insight on Tennessee. And who knows if things drags out for a while, we may have you on again. <laughs> uh, at this point, I don't know if there's any end in sight. So this may become a regular segment, guys. All right. Have a great weekend, sir. Take care, fellas. Yep. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. That is uh, Steve Lehman. He's a sports anchor at News Channel 5 in Nashville. He used to be on these airwaves uh, several years ago with Steve Kelly, so good to catch up with him. We're taking our final timeout. We'll come up and uh, back and wrap up the show here on DWS. The place for Illinois basketball fans after every game is the Fasteners Etc. post-game show. Hi, I'm Scott Beatty. Join the conversation with me, Tim Dittman, and Michael Kaiser after every game right here on News Talk 1400. We always welcome your calls on the PNC Bank fan line or send us a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line. Plus, we keep you up to date with the Body and Soul scoreboard. It's the Fasteners Etc. post-game show after every Illini basketball game right here on News Talk 1400 and WDWS.com. Huge sale going on 9 to 1 at Memorial Stadium today. Game Day Spirit Semi-Annual Stadium Sale. Get Illini t-shirts as low as $4. Bobbleheads buy three, get one free. Hats as low as $8. Ornaments, blankets, tailgate gear, great stocking stuffers, and gifts for the Illini fan. Today, 9 to 1 at Memorial Stadium in the West Hall. Get gear for the Illini fan in your life. Game Day Spirit. Welcome back to Saturday Sports Talk here on DWS. He's Lauren Tata, Michael Kaiser. It's going to do it for today's show. Lauren, great stuff today. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I, I think when you get people like that, like Steve and like Adam, that are covering specific things, they can talk 
more specifically about it. Yeah. And he really, really good. Thanks to John Chrisman, Adam Rittenberg, Ryan Easterling, and Steve Lehman. Thanks a lot for your, for your phone calls, your texts. Most of all, thanks for listening. Thanks to Evan Kahn. Have a great weekend, everybody.